Welcome to Voices United, a congregational song podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Brody, and in this episode, I visit with English hymn writer Martin Lekebush. Martin has several published collections of hymns and psalm paraphrases, and his work can be found in many recent hymnals. My interview with Martin took place in Canterbury, England in July 2019. Welcome to this episode of Voices United, a congregational song podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Brody, and I'm happy this morning to be spending time with Martin Lekebush, a hymn writer from the UK. Martin, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Martin, uh, could you start by telling us about your earliest memories of singing, uh, of hymn singing or congregational singing? How did your childhood experiences shape your vocation as a hymn writer? Well, we sang hymns at school. In those days in the United Kingdom, most schools had an assembly in the morning. Uh, and I think when I was first at school, it was actually a legal requirement that we had to have that whole school assembly. And typically there would be a hymn and a prayer and maybe a reading. <laughs> and uh, so sang some hymns at school. And the first school that I attended when I was quite small was associated with the Anglican Church. Occasionally we had services at the church as well as assembly every, morn every morning. And the, the church in that village, incidentally, it was it's a, a little village in the Midlands of England, and the village is so old that it gets a mention in the Doomsday Book from the Norman times in 1086. There's an old Norman stone church there, and a somewhat newer school building, though it, it was fairly old when I was there and had a leaking roof. But we sang hymns there. And interestingly, I still have the book that we used and I discovered later. It's an abridged edition of uh, Dirma's Songs of Praise, first published in 1928. It's gone through a few revisions. And when I rediscovered that volume, I think it was in the loft at home, I was intrigued to say that I had marked all the items that I knew in the index, including some hymns that I'd forgotten since then. So that was one part of early memories. I also attended Sunday school at the local Methodist church in the village and I remember we had some wild new songbooks that we acquired at one time, uh, Youth Praise and a Scripture Union songbook called Sing to God. Uh, occasionally my parents and I went to services at that Methodist church, especially after the new building opened in the village, which I think was in 1972. And on one occasion, only one occasion, I was invited to sing a solo in the Sunday school anniversary <laughs> services, which was nerve-wracking, partly from having to sing solo, but also because we had high-tiered seating, planks of wood fastened together, huh? going up uh, at the front of the church, and this, this awful feeling that if the kid behind you pushes, you could cartwheel right down <laughs> to the bottom. But those are some of the early memories of singing, and I guess that they they put some of the hymns in my mind, <laughs> and uh, and some of them came back later. Ah, wonderful. Could you tell us a little bit about your faith journey? Sure. As I said, I went to the Methodist Sunday School. My mother's background was very strongly Methodist, and my grandfather, who I never really knew because he died when I was just a baby, he was a Sunday School superintendent for many years, not in the place I grew up. On my father's side, I'm less sure what the heritage was. My dad was born in Wuppertal in Germany. It's a town about an hour's drive north of Cologne. He was born there in 1909, 
and he came to Britain in 1932 and became a British citizen in 1938. Now his background may have been Lutheran, it may have been Reformed, he didn't really talk about it a great deal, um, although I have been to church with my cousin, who lives back in Wuppertal now, um, I didn't take note of quite what it was, and it was all in German, which is not a language I know particularly well. But anyway, what really made the difference for me was when a school friend took me along to a local Pentecostal church when I was 14, and that's where I became a Christian. And since then I've attended several different denominations as I've moved around different parts of this country for work and student life and so on and usually looking for a good evangelical charismatic congregation where firstly I could fit in and then latterly where my wife and I could and then when we had a family where the whole family could fit in. It came full circle a few ye- for a few years. We lived in inner city Birmingham in England and we attended a very lively Methodist church there. Uh, we used to delight in telling people that we moved from the Pentecostal church to the Methodist church because the Methodist church was more lively, which was the case. <laughs> Uh, and it was it was quite an interesting place and for five years I was a Methodist local preacher and I'd like to think that my grandfather would have been pleased mm. and also would have been pleased that the latest British Methodist hymn book Singing the Faith includes half a dozen texts by one of his grandsons mm-hmm. oh, that's great I would say that since the quite fundamentalist Pentecostal roots from early Christian days I have broadened out a little I'm still very committed to staying true to scripture from that conservative evangelical viewpoint but also being open to see God at work in other parts of the church and I hope that my writing reflects that. For example, I I wrote a hymn a few years ago based on Genesis 1, a hymn about creation which I deliberately tried to word so that it could be sung with integrity by those who believe in the literal six days of creation and by those who see that as a theological mission, myth and are convinced by the accuracy of evolution as an explanation of what mm. happened. It was interesting trying to get the balance and, and put words that could be done from both viewpoints uh. and anything in between. Mm. What's, the, what's the name of that hymn? Ah... Uh, Sing of the God Who Spoke. Ah. It's set to, it's a, a double short meter. I, I think it's, it has been sung with Diadomata, the crown of many, crown with many crowns tune. Ah, okay. Ah. Uh, so tell us how you first came to write hymns. Well, that was a Saturday morning in 1987. Uh, it's etched on my mind. It happened to be the weekend when my wife and I had our first wedding anniversary. Hmm. And my daily Bible reading was Psalm 139, and I thought, I want to sing this. <laughs> and the only songbook I'd got to hand didn't have anything obvious from that psalm. There was a scripture index, and I looked, no reference to Psalm 139. So there I was, equipped with a maths degree and the arrogance of youth, which are the obvious qualifications, <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm going to write something, and I drafted some verses. And they eventually became four verses in double common meter, 8686D, and they were published as, My Lord, You Have Examined Me. What pleases me is that there's a book in the States called Psalms for All Seasons, which came out, I think, around about 2015, 2016, which contains that text. And it's also in the new bilingual English and Spanish hymnal from GIA, which is just out, uh, still recognisable from what I first wrote, 
back in August 87. Uh, and I think that's probably the first time that anything of mine has been translated into another language as well. So they've started with the first one. And, and since then I've just got the book for writing and I think I've probably averaged about one new text every three weeks over the years. It's ebbed and flowed for uh, as, as the years have gone, but it's been about that on average. So it sounds like singing the Psalms was one of the first kind of uh, spurs to to create texts, and you, I know, have have paraphrased and versified all 150 Psalms. Yes, the the first few texts that I wrote were from the Psalms, and then I started to branch out a little more, and I tried something from Isaiah, and and so it's gone on from there. But the first collection that I had published was beginning of 2000. It was a, a collection called More Than Words, and that was 144 texts, which included maybe 17 or 18 texts from the Psalms. And Kevin Mayhew, who published that, got in touch with me and said, I like what you've done with the Psalms. Would you like to do them all? And sharp intake of breath. That's a lot of writing. But anyway, in the end, yes, did that, and which was a a fascinating exercise to do because there are some that are easy and there are some that are hard and some of the ones that are hard are because of what's in the psalm Mm. or because it's an incredibly long psalm and if you want to make something that a congregation might actually use on a (laughs) Sunday you don't want 78 verses or whatever it is and some of them are hard because they've been done so well before what more can you do with Psalm 23 or Psalm 103 or Psalm 150 so it becomes a challenge of trying to find a new way of looking at it without just going off on a tangent for the sake of being novel so how how did you deal with Psalm 119 for example Psalm 119 I cheated (laughs) because I was working towards this project of having 150 texts from 150 Psalms And I got as far as Psalm 42 and 43 and thought, they belong together. That will be one text. That's going to give me 149 on 150 psalms. And the way I resolved that was cheating with Psalm 150. I did one text, which was three verses set to Finlandia, which picked up themes from all the way through. Mm. And then I did another text where I took three of the particular stanzas and just treated those, versified those. Oh, okay. Uh, So that was how I did Psalm 119. And how did you handle Psalm 137? Psalm 137, the, yeah, the the dashing the infants against the rocks, I think I sort of treated that as the Hebrews saying, how would you like it if this happened to you? Uh, Yeah. And took that kind of slant on it, (laughs) which perhaps sanitizes it a little, um, but that was the way that I tackled that one. Yeah, that's great. Mm. What or who has influenced you, and, and why do you write hymns? Well, I guess typically I write hymns as a way of doing theology, a way of expressing something which has struck me, mm. and that may be from something I've read, I've, I've read, or I've heard, or seen. It may be from a Bible passage. It may be from another book from a sermon that I've heard, sometimes from a sermon that I've given. It might just be from a conversation, or occasionally it might be something non-verbal. It might be a piece of music or a landscape that makes me think. And as for who influences me, from the great writers of the past, probably mostly Isaac Watts, 
and from today's writers, obviously people like Timothy Dudley Smith and Christopher Idle, Alan Gaunt, Fred Pratt Green, and from what I see as the far west, people like Carl Dorr and Thomas Troger. In particular, coming back to Timothy Dudley Smith, there's a, a story, after I'd been writing texts for, I guess, four or five years, I'd done quite a few from Romans chapter 8, gone through Romans 8, and I sent them to Timothy to see if he would comment, and he wrote back a letter that was very gracious and very trenchant, pointing out what needed to be tidied up. And I think it probably took me six times reading the letter before I could work out whether he was saying carry on or give up. Yeah. <laughs> and I concluded that it was carry on. So I resolved to go back and rework mm. everything that I thought I'd finished up to that point, which was probably a little more than a hundred texts. Mm. And so I did that and started working to a higher standard. So Timothy's advice was key and has become the kernel of a lot of my thinking mm. on how to put a hymn text together from then on. Mm. Are there particular people that you have read drafts of your texts and give you feedback, or um, is that a part of your process? I generally run a text past my wife, who is, she's like me, she's a graduate, she's very bright, she's, uh, but she's not a hymn writer. Um, so she will look at it and she will say, yeah, that's very good. What about this? What about that? And she will pick up on things. Sometimes she will pick up on things that I haven't noticed. And sometimes she'll pick up on things where actually I did have slight doubts and misgivings anyway. <laughs> and it's useful then. And okay, I'll put a mark on that. And I need to go back and rethink that. And maybe that can be done pretty well instantly. Maybe it will take longer. Hmm. But yes, I do get her to look at things. Occasionally, texts go to other people. Uh, I have some involvement with the Jubilate group in the UK, and a few of my texts have gone uh, onto the Jubilate website, and a few have been put forward and not gone on, because there is uh, a little committee that does a quality assurance function hmm. on those texts. I actually chaired that committee for, I think, about 12 years. Uh, everything reviewed anonymously. So you'd be sitting there in a room, three or four people, pulling a text to pieces and aware that the author may be in the room, <laughs> trying to keep a straight face, which can be an interesting experience. Um, but yeah, that, that kind of thing is also so valuable <laughs> so much of the time. What do you see as the role of hymns in worship? I'd say there are two parts to this. I'd say first it's about what we sing, because our theology and our faith are informed and reinforced and expressed through what we sing. And in this context I think it's important that what we sing is true to scripture and equally is relevant to life today. It feels as though we need eternal truth in contemporary language and idiom. And I feel that here traditional hymns, and I mean traditional in form, not just things that are old and have been written 50 years ago or more, but those, that form of traditional hymn, I think they have an edge because they feed the mind, the thoughts, not just the feelings, the experiences. And songs, by contrast, so often create a mood and open up the emotions, but we need a good balance of both. We need many different styles and, and, and a good balance of them. Uh, to get the whole experience of worship. Mm. So that's the first part. But the second part, I would say, is 
the question of when we sing because a service of worship needs a focus and it needs a flow and those who come from liturgical traditions which I don't have this from a set order of service that gets followed other streams such as the Baptist congregation which is where I now worship have a much looser pattern we, we have a structure on a Sunday morning we have a time of worship with singing we'll have something for the children in that then they'll go out to their classes then we'll have a more reflective time of song and then we'll come to the word and, and have a 30 minute sermon and then occasionally once a month we have communion which maybe after the sermon maybe before the sermon but the, this, there's some structure but either way I would like it to be that the next hymn or song should pick up where we've got to and yeah. follow on from what's gone before before it should be the appropriate way for the congregation to take the next step on their journey of worship that was something that I learned through my Methodist local preacher training and that has stuck with me mm. and one of the things I try to ask myself about a new text is when in a service mm. would this be used yeah. when would it make sense to use this yeah I think that's such a good such an important question I uh, sometimes get questions about is this a good song <laughs> and, and often from students and, and often my answer is it depends on where and when <laughs> mm. where in the service and what what's the occasion it might be the perfect song for a response in this particular setting mm. but it might be the absolute wrong song in a in a in a completely different setting and so mm. I think that is so helpful that idea that the context um, where and when that that song appears is so important mm. it, it makes no sense to sing go into all the world or go forth and tell is the first yeah. in the service <laughs> it's, it's an obvious example but there are so many so many other more subtle variations of that where yeah. it would make sense to think actually is this the best place or would it be better just to do something else here yeah yeah mm. that's great what today is most encouraging to you in, in the landscape of congregational singing and worship? I think I'm encouraged that there is still so much creativity out there. Hmm. Um, and I'm also encouraged that there, there seems to be an increasing openness to unf unfamiliar forms. What I mean by that is that some of the newer churches and some in the younger generation are discovering the riches in older traditions. Yeah. And some of the more traditional traditions are open to newer writing. Mm. There's a lovely situation that uh, we had. It's, it's not specifically do, to do with hymns. But I spoke about being a Methodist back in Birmingham. And one of the churches in our circuit was a big old building. And the congregation were predominantly over 80s. And they had this huge monstrous building. What could they do with it? Well, they inherited some money and they were able to buy a building on the other side of the same street so they are still called by the same name as the name of the road and they got a building that was more suitable for them and their original building was bought by one of the new I guess more emerging church groups that had been meeting in a, uh, a borrowed schoolroom and decided that they wanted to get a little bit more of the feeling of architecture and stained glass and so on so there's, there's that sense of the newer groups picking up something older and we see that as well to some extent uh, in in hymnody uh, some of the older hymns being brought back in yeah. and given new tunes and sometimes given a refrain and sometimes it damages what's there but 
at least there is the beginnings of a respect yeah. and people are recognising that. And on the other side, the, the older traditions, the more traditional groups taking on newer things. Uh, a friend of mine told of uh, an old lady in his congregation who is quite adamant that when her funeral comes, she wants the Lord's my shepherd, the Stuart Townend version, uh, not the old traditional version from the Scottish Psalter yes. of 1650. Yes. <laughs> uh, what today most concerns you in congregational singing? I think I'm concerned when churches don't embrace the breadth of material that's available and as a result have a restricted view because so many of our contemporary worship songs are actually fairly shallow and superficial and there's a place for that. They can open up the emotions, they can help people to engage with God. But if that's all you get, well, look what happened to Morgan Spurlock in Supersize Me. <laughs> and, you know, we need a balanced diet in worship as in, uh, as in food. Mm. So, yeah, if, if it, all you sing is the modern worship songs, which tend to be very focused on a narrow part of the theological spectrum, yeah. you don't get the broader issues of discipleship brought out. Mm. Um, I'd love to see that breadth coming through more. What does that look like in your church? Um, and I'm assuming your church sings some of your hymns. Not very often. Oh, really? Okay. Really not very often. There's Occasionally I manage to sneak one in. <laughs> um, we're very much a song-oriented church, yeah. and we do have a small repertoire of hymns, probably no more than about 20 in total, and, and you can probably guess what they are because they're, they're fairly standard, fairly well known. The, the guy who's in charge of the worship has, was appointed as, as worship deacon within the past 12 months and there is a review of our repertoire going on at the moment where somebody's going through a filing cabinet looking what we've got and how long mm. have we had this and when did we last use it. So it is on the agenda. Yeah. Um, Occasionally, as I said, we get a, a good hymn in, but it takes a while for new things, for unfamiliar things to get established. <laughs> and it's unfortunate, unfortunately, it is the case that if it sometimes happens, I'm preaching and I think, right, I've got three weeks to prepare this sermon, and I think I'd really like to use that hymn. <laughs> if it's not one that's well known, that isn't long enough to get it yeah. onto the, uh, to get it onto the music stands and uh, and get it sung. And sometimes I can get away with something if it is to a well-known tune. Uh, Rosalind Brown's Go at the Call of God, which is again actually sung to Diadomata, we have used a couple of times, mm. and, and that's been good. Mm. So most of your hymns you haven't sung in, in worship then, is that true? Well, not in corporate worship. Yeah. I may have sung it's in, in personal worship, of course, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I can think of only twice when I have gone into a church service and found that a hymn of mine was to be sung and I didn't know uh, that it was uh. coming up. And, and that's it's a nice experience and also thinking, hmm, how's this going? <laughs> but equally, um, some few years ago we were at a, a small to medium-sized uh, weekend event and bumped into a lady that we'd known back in our Birmingham days who had sub subsequently gone off and done, I don't know what, all around the world, and she said, oh, we sang one of your hymns in a church in the Falkland Islands. Oh. 
<laughs> I don't know which one it was, because she couldn't remember. Uh, um, but I'll probably never get to the Falkland Islands, but at least something was sung there. So it's quite a, a humbling thought that yes. something I wrote has travelled that far to that remote a place. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a copyright report where I can see which, where one of my tunes has been sung and that's you know been recorded um, mm. and uh, and I saw that one was sung in Australia at some point last year and that just baffled me that uh, that somehow I don't know how that tune found its way over there but uh, but somebody picked it up and uh, well books travel and things on the internet travel even faster yes so, yeah <laughs> that's great uh, if in a hundred years only one of your hymns was to be found in congregational song repertoire or in a hymnal, if we still have hymnals, which one would you like it to be? Well, I was talking to Jane, my wife, the other day, and I mentioned this question, and I said to her, I'm going to write a hymn whose first line is, Church, take note, there's more than this. (laughs) Um, But seriously, I think I would say it's the hymn, Teach Me, Dear Lord, to Savour Every Moment. Mm -hmm. It's only two verses. It's set to London Derriere or Danny Boy, whichever you prefer to call the tune. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's one that I probably wrote over 20 years ago but it's stuck in my mind as one that I'm particularly pleased with Hmm. Um, there's an irony in it because it's about not being bound by about not being bound by the rush of time and demands of calendar and diary and clock Hmm. and so on and I was working on this hymn one day I was re-roofing the garden shed and had ideas going round so it was a matter of quick come down from the shed and write something down before I forget it Hmm. and then that same evening I had to meet somebody to collect something that we were borrowing and I was driving along and ideas for the second verse were in my head so it was quick stop the car scribble this down (laughs) I've got to get there by eight o'clock and there's this hymn about not being driven by urgency and Uh, demands of uh. time but that's the one that I think sticks in my mind as, as one that I find most satisfying. I know that I'm putting you on the spot are you, would you be able to recite that or a stanza of that? Teach me, dear Lord, to savour every moment, each precious hour, a gift which is unique. For your unhurried guiding hand I cherish, and the contentment of your ways I seek. When date and time demand my full attention, from frantic rushing let my heart be free, that I may flow within your spirit's rhythm and live each minute just as it was meant to be. But may I also glimpse the broader canvas, to all my life a purpose and a plan, and let me hear again that voice which called me before this world or time itself began. So may your kingdom daily be my watchword, and may the pulse in all my life be praise, across unfolding years and changing seasons, until with you I walk through everlasting days. Hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. I think if I if I got to uh, to place a vote for a hymn of yours that I hope is still around in a hundred years, it would be um, in an age of twisted values. All right, okay. Although at our at our conference we sang it to Heiferdal, mm-hmm. which didn't feel to me to quite work well with that text. I don't know. Did you envision that with a particular tune? I can't remember because it's a long time ago that that one was written. That was quite an early one. Mm. Um, That's fascinating because I, to me, that that hymn feels so contemporary mm. um, it, and, and timely. Um, so if it was written 
20 plus years ago that it's great that it that it it's still I mean <laughs> great that it still feels timely mm. um, also sad that it, it it is still timely but yeah I does it work with that tune <sighs> the problem with some eight line tunes and I can't remember with Five for Adult whether that is the case is that they're kind of two four line tunes put together yes yeah and there is certainly one verse in that particular hymn, I think it's the third verse, where the whole argument builds up through six lines and then the final two lines. It's, um, I forget how it is, but it's when we do this, when we don't treat the aged with respect, when, yeah. when, and then, then it's hear our mm-hmm. cry and heal our nation. So that needs something that doesn't come to a full stop halfway through or you yeah. lose the flow of the words. Yeah, yeah. And Heiferdahl just feels a little too triumphant to me for that for it, that. Yes, text. It, it perhaps needs something a little bit a little bit more pain in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's a great tune by Alfidak and the tune name is escaping me now, but it's set with your text in I, I know of it. I don't know the tune. Glory to I need God. to learn it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yes, I have seen that. What's also actually interesting um, on that one is that that is a hymn that I finished very quickly. Usually I don't. But that one was written in the course of about 10 days, start to finish. Because a friend was providing the music. There were some lunchtime talks being done in the Birmingham Cathedral by somebody from the Birmingham Bible Institute based on Isaiah chapter 1. And... John said, have you got anything that we could sing? So mm. I wrote this, start to finish in about 10 days, and it's got a number of books, mm. which is interesting. There are certain texts, and I'm not saying that's one of them, but there are certain texts which have a kind of givenness about them, yeah. and there are others that it's just weeks of sweat. Yeah. yeah, Not solidly, but you go to something, you try and resolve an issue. It's almost like doing a cryptic crossword. You, <laughs> you let the clues roll around in the back of your mind and then suddenly oh I understand that now I see what it isn't and, and sometimes words in a hymn to get them right mm. can be like that for me mm. it just takes time for it to sit in the background and, and process itself because generally it's, it's a fairly structured and methodical process that I go through I need an idea it might be a bible passage it might be something else another train of thought and then I need some idea of meter yeah. and usually a particular tune provisionally in mind because I'm not much of a musician I can make things sound bad on a piano but I've got a reasonable sense of rhythm and then I try and get a a workable first draft that may be in one sitting it may be one verse a day for a few days that's when I usually get my wife to say nice things about it if she will Um, and then I I have a point that I try and leave it alone for at least a month because after that the first flush of pride can have mm. faded a little and then it's easier to be objective mm. about what's been drafted so far mm. and to be more ruthless yeah. with correcting things. There's a lovely bit in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that book. It's, it's a vision of people visiting heaven which turns out to be a place so solid that for the visitors, the grass, the blades of grass hurt their feet yeah. because the people appear as ghosts. And one of the, the residents of, of heaven that's showing a visitor around 
talks about how every poet and musician and artist but for grace is drawn away from love of the thing he tells to love the telling till down in deep hell they cannot be interested in God at all but only in what they say about him Mm -hmm. which is very challenging but then it goes on within a couple of paragraphs that this same character in the story is talking about a fountain somewhere and he says it's a, a cold clear fountain up in the mountains and says when you've drunk of it you forget forever all proprietorship in your own works you enjoy them just as if they were someone else's without pride and without modesty mm-hmm. and that's something that i think is very powerful very yeah. wonderful to to be able to do mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. i leave things to to one side for a month or longer and then i've got a checklist that i've built up over the years of things that i look at for every hymn and it's it's rigorous and methodical and it's, I look at theme and language and rhyme and poetry and intelligibility and scansion and pronunciation all kinds of things uh, and it's only when I've been through that lot do I consider something is is finished so that that takes time but that is a, a key for me it's a, it's a method it doesn't guarantee I can write good texts but it might help to stop some of the bad ones from getting out into the wild so those those texts that have gotten out into the wild, mm. you've been writing texts long enough now, and you've seen many of yours find their way into a variety of hymnals. Have, yes. Are there ones that have surprised you that they have taken off, and, and are, have you been surprised by others that maybe haven't? Yes, I have. Perhaps I'm, I'm not emotionally disengaged enough to be able to say what's a good one and what's a bad one. It's just what I find resonates with me and to a certain extent they're bound to if I've written them but some do more than others there is a text show me how to stand for justice maybe it's just that Kevin Mayhew who publishes mine is particularly fond of it but that seems to have got in quite a few of his books (laughs) I wouldn't count it as one of the most obviously dynamic but (laughs) he seems to like it gets in the books so fine and then something like Teach Me, Dear Lord, to Savor Every Moment is in a handful of books. And there's other things that I've written where I think that really, to my mind, is is a text I'm satisfied with. <laughs> Christ is the Lord whose realm extends across the breadth of space, which is set to Gates Calf, the tune that was written for, well, among others, um, Give to Me, Lord, a Thankful Mind, <laughs> Carol Micklem words and music though he didn't write it for that particular text in the first place but it's a lovely tune and I've written for it a few times and that's a text of mine to that don't think it's ever gone anywhere other than um, author collections but maybe one day (laughs) but yeah it's surprising what works and what doesn't when you put it in a congregational setting Well, Martin, it's been a real joy getting to spend this time with you and I'd like to close with five questions that I ask each person that I interview. The first is, which hymn has most shaped your faith? That's hard to say. Um, I think I would go for My Song is Love Unknown, Samuel Crossman, 17th century, and yet it still sounds fresh. The poetry of that hymn is beautiful, and the truth it conveys is profound and moving, (laughs) and and it's a superb piece of writing. What hymn do you turn to for comfort? That's another hard question. I'm going to say, All My Hope on God is Founded. And again, actually, that's a 17th century text. 
we usually sing the translation by Robert Bridges, who was a poet of some standing, knew what he was doing there. And uh, certainly in my experience, it's often sung to the tune Michael, yeah. which is a, a beautiful tune. And uh, Michael was actually the name of our son who died young. He was, uh, mm. he was a baby and he would have been 25 now. Mm. So there's a little bit of a, of a resonance from the name of the tune as yeah. well. But it's a hymn that I do enjoy. Mm. What is your favorite piece of music? That depends what day you ask me, because <laughs> I have quite broad tastes, and in any given day, some days I listen to quite a lot of music, and on a day when I listen to a lot of music, there might be some Keith Jarrett, there might be some Al Stewart, there might be some Michael Card, and a Sibelius Symphony, and some Mike Oldfield, and some Wynton Marsalis, and maybe a bit of U2, <laughs> so I, I can't really pin it down to to one particular piece of music, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that 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 breadth, that's, that's a, quite a wide spectrum you've just listed up there. It is, and there was, somebody asked me that, a, a similar question for a hymnal companion, and I think I quoted Sibelius, the Spin Doctors, and Stan Getz. <laughs> that's great. What, what book other than the Bible has most shaped your faith or influenced your vocation? There are a few books I can think of that I've read three times because they were worth rereading. One of them I've already mentioned, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's not a long book, doesn't take a lot of effort to read that three times. Another one is a book called The Fight by John White, who was a British doctor, worked um, worked with students a lot, and ended up, um, I think he ended up in either Canada or the US, I forget which, um, pastoring a vineyard church at one time but the fight was just a basic introduction to discipleship I think I'd been a Christian about six or seven years when I first read it and even then I thought I wish I'd read this earlier Mm. because Mm. I found that very good and the other one that I came to more recently is a book called The Crown and the Fire by Rowan Williams and that's a series of, of meditations Firstly, some meditations around the cross and then some thoughts around Pentecost. And that's a book that I have found very challenging. And is, as is often the case, there's at least one hymn come out of that book. There is a, a text, now we hear Creation Groaning, which draws on Romans 8, which is very much inspired by Rowan Williams' address to the Church of England Synod from that passage in Romans 8. Hmm. Um, which was written up as a chapter in that book. So those, those are the kind of things that I, I, I go back to time and again mm-hmm. and enjoy reading, and they, they, they shape my thinking. Which hymn would you like to have sung at your funeral? Well, I've already picked them. <laughs> um, I've picked The Changing of the Seasons, which is one of mine, which is written for a funeral. <laughs> it was written, four verses, it becomes a more general hymn if the third verse is dropped out, but if the third verse is left in, then it is more specifically for a funeral. I've already mentioned my song is Love Unknown. I should like that to be there. By Gracious Powers So Wonderfully Sheltered, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, translated by Fred Pratt Green and Keith Clements, partly because it's a great hymn, but partly also because of the German heritage and my family. And I would also like Teach Me, Dear Lord, to Savor Every Moment, mm. with its ending about walking through everlasting years. It would seem appropriate as a, as a last hymn there. Mm. And I've also chosen a couple of pieces of music there. 
um, at the start there is a piece called Man of Words. It's a jazz lament by Booker Little, hmm. who died very young, about the time that I was born, but amongst his recorded work there is this painfully sad lament and the phrase man of words is one that I like to feel applies to me <laughs> to some extent at least and then at the other end of the thing another piece of jazz Oscar Peterson's Hymn to Freedom mm. to which I did actually write a hymn text oh, really? years ago um, I don't think that's ever made it into any other books but if I had my way which I maybe won't that would be printed, the words would be printed on the order of service so that people could see them and it's a, it's a lighter, fresher tune to finish with after mm-hmm. a sombre occasion. But hey, it may not be my choice. <laughs> <laughs> well Martin, thank you so much. I have so enjoyed spending this time with you and, and learning about your craft and, uh, and, your, and your work. It's been a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you very much. Voices United, a Congregational Song podcast, is produced by Benjamin Brody with support from the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada and Whitworth University. Special thanks to the Center for Congregational Song for publicity and technical expertise and Whitworth University student Jason Schilling for editing and production. 